Good morning, Jericho Ridge. My name's Rose, and I'm not part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. I am, however, really grateful and honored to have been asked to contribute to the current teaching on Ephesians. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your Bible apps to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. First, I need to change my glasses. Oh, there you are. Great. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things the ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We know that the word of God does not go out into a void that God always honors the public reading of his word, and it's an honor to read it. Praise God. 
So wow, what a notable and controversial portion of scripture we have to look at this morning. Now the original text I was given started in verse 3 with a command that kind of hits a person square between the eyes. It looks for all the world like a list of typical Christian do-nots. And there is no denying that, in fact, that is exactly what it is. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Well, Paul is certainly shooting from the hip, isn't he? Do you think the Ephesian believers were shocked? Do you think their sensibilities were scandalized? Given the context of Ephesian society in AD 60 to 62, and for that matter, the entire ancient world, and even our own, I think they would have been surprised if Paul hadn't spoken out about what what role sex played in the Christian life and the Christian church because sexual expression of every type was everywhere. The city of Ephesians centered around the temple of Artemis, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a beautiful building and it was a major tourist attraction. In fact, when Paul lived in Ephesus, the city was socially and economically tied to the religion of Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt. Now, strangely and confusingly enough, though, according to Greek legend, Artemis had sworn off marriage and sex and taken up hunting because her mother had had a horrible labor giving birth to her, so she was not into that at all. She wasn't what I would consider a very good candidate for a goddess of fertility. But no matter, the Ephesian society was polytheistic. They believed in a multitude of gods, some greater, some lesser, but none as magnificent as the goddess Artemis. So when she didn't fit their mold, they just made a new one. What resulted was a fusion of the cult of Artemis and another Asian deity of fertility. What Artemis lacked, the other deity provided. And as a result, getting feedback? Okay, can I take this right off? Okay, let's do that. So as a result of the fact that the cult had fused these two god goddesses, temple prostitution was rampant and prostitutes sold their bodies without condemnation. Sex outside of marriage, outside any mutually respecting relationship at all, was not just commonplace. It was sanctioned by the official religion of the city and it was what religious people did. Craftspeople made a fantastic living fashioning souvenirs, shrines, and art idols to Artemis. And the temple itself was so affluent that it had a side hustle as a bank, and it gave out loans. 
All in all, the religion of Artemis made the temple and the people of the city of Ephesus very, very, very rich. Then along came the apostle Paul with the good news of the gospel, and you could say he kind of upset the apple cart. Acts 19 tells us the content of his public discussions and his activities among the Ephesian people. He challenged their belief in the power of idols. To back up his bold message, God stepped in and gave him the ability to release people from evil spirits, as well as enabling him to heal the sick. As a matter of fact, they, they made little kerchiefs that touched Paul's body, and then they would go and touch that piece of cloth to a person who was sick, and they were healed. It was an amazing thing, and it was, a, it was an amazing way that God gave credence to what Paul said. But Paul didn't paint himself as anybody special. He didn't claim to be anybody great. He gave the glory to God and called his hearers to a new life, a life of light, a life of hope, a light of spiritual freedom. And many, many people responded and turned their hearts over to Jesus Christ, the direction of the Holy Spirit, and the teaching of Paul. People turned from the confusion of the fertility worship to follow a new and a different way. Those who had previously been involved in sorcery and the occult burned their incantation books. And it was estimated that the cost of that fuel to light that bonfire was equal to several million dollars. It was an incredibly grand gesture that spoke to the Ephesians' drastic turning away from their old way of life, of doing things, and turning to a new way, or as the people called it back then, the way. But after the ashes had been sifted, and it was time to go back to living everyday life, what then? What then? What did a Christ-following life look like? How could the Ephesian converts live in this new light? And frankly, how can we, who follow in their footsteps, live in that light? The answer is as simple as it is a bit confusing. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Imitate God in everything you do because you are his dear children. Say what? You know, when I was 16 years old, about two years after I'd become a Christ follower, I participated in a ministry project in a small town in Nova Scotia, my home province. As a teenager who hadn't been much of anywhere and hadn't done much of anything outstanding to that point in my life, I was excited to hit the streets and with maybe a hundred other kids my age, most of us bust in from the booming metropolis of Halifax, we were going to take the, the town of Bridgewater for Jesus Christ. And it was an exhilarating feeling. Off we went with our fists full of photocopied invitations. And we personally invited everyone we met 
to come to the rally at the Pentecostal church that Saturday evening to hear the pastor talk about giving your heart to Jesus and what it meant to be a true Christian. Well, that was in the mid-70s and a time when small-town Nova Scotians, in fact, Nova Scotians in general, were wonderful, kind, and tolerant people. I can't remember one person who actually refused to take my invitations. As much as I had fears about talking to people about God, which this kind of felt like but really wasn't, at least not in my case, no one made fun of me. No one really harassed me in any way. And many told me what a good young lady I was to be doing this. But there was this one guy, someone I never forgot, who asked a few pointed questions about me and my faith journey that deflated me. I remember telling him about the rally and about what the pastor was going to speak about, and I noticed he seemed fascinated almost laser-focused on what I was saying. And I have to tell you, that made me feel really, really nervous. Really uneasy. And so he said, are you a Christian? And I told him that I was, and that I'd given my life to Jesus two years previous. Now, he thought that was really, really, really interesting. And he wondered if I would mind if he asked me a few questions. So I said, okay, no problem. So before you became religious, oh, I hate that term, um, were you a prostitute? Uh, no, <laughs> that, that wasn't my story. Well, did you do drugs? No. Well, did you steal? Um, no. Were you getting drunk with your friends? No. Were you flunking out of school? Well, you know, I wasn't the best student, but I really wasn't failing. So, no. Did you even smoke tobacco? <laughs> um, no. Honestly, people, what I saw when I looked in his face was complete disappointment. My answer to him was this. I'm just a kid who needed Jesus in my life, and now he's my friend. And there really isn't much more to it than that. There was part of me that wanted to have a more spectacular story, and I had met people, even kids my own age, age 16, age 17, who had that kind of story, but it wasn't my story. Now, I don't know if this guy simply had a penchant for the seedier side of life, or if he was a better actor than I took him for, and he was simply messing with my mind. Whatever the case, it was clear that if he was looking for a sensational conversion story, he wasn't going to find it from me. He made a comment something like, well, you know, the Pentecostal church might have a larger crowd this evening if you had a better story to tell. <laughs> I passed him an invitation and said I hoped he'd come, but, you know, not surprisingly, I never saw him again. But wow, did he ever leave an impression on my mind.
Are some sins greater than others? Some are more spectacular. There's no doubt about that. Paul starts off in Ephesians 5.3 with the really impressive ones. First among them, sexual immorality. Which is sexual behavior that is not pleasing to God. Sexual behavior that reduces participants to perpetrators and objects. Sexual behavior that is not properly loving to oneself or to the other person involved or persons. Sexual behavior that is far from what God intended sex to be because you see God invented sex. We sometimes forget that. And it's not bad or intrinsically sinful or immoral. So in case any of you are counting, I've just used 60 words to describe sexual immorality. <laughs> Ephesians 5.3 describes it using only six. St. Paul lists it and the other sins, some of which people might think are minor or inconsequential in comparison to the big one. And he is notably brief and graciously bereft of description. Why? Because as Paul puts it in verse 12, it is shameful even to talk about the things the ungodly do. Now, it took me a while to understand this. One sin differs from the other in scope, perhaps, but not in consequence. Each and every failure to meet God's holy standard needs a perfect sacrifice. And when Jesus died for me, and when he died for you, and when he died for the church, that I became part of that church, he was not so big that he refused to bother himself with my sins. And he wasn't so small that he was incapable of covering any sin of any magnitude. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all included 14-year-old Rose. God takes all sin seriously. He took my sin seriously. Even if, even if many people, like the man I met on the street of Bridgewater, considered it of no consequence. When God first showed me my sin, his Holy Spirit convinced me that nothing short of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus could set me right with God and give me eternal life. I accepted Christ's work on the cross as having been done on my behalf, and my new life as light began. Now, as much as I appreciate the NLT version of the Bible, I think the King James and the Revised Version are closer to the truth when they say that we believers, individually and as the church, are the light. Christians are not to live in the light and walk in the light, but to actually be the light that shines into the darkness of the world that surrounds us. Max Lucado, a contemporary Christian writer, put it this way, and I respect Max Lucado. He is really one of the top devotional writers of our generation. And he's referring to Colossians 1.27. And he says, Christ in you, the hope 
of glory. Now, for many years, he said, I missed this truth. Can you believe that? I, I thought Max Lucado knew everything. <laughs> I believed the other prepositions, Christ for me, Christ with me, Christ ahead of me, but I never imagined Christ was in me. Now, I can't blame my deficiency on scripture. Paul refers to the indwelling of Christ 216 times. John mentions his presence 26 times. No other religion or philosophy makes such a claim. No other movement implies the living presence of its founder in its followers. Muhammad does not indwell Muslims. Buddha does not inhabit Buddhists. Influence, yes. Instruct, yes. But occupy, no. The mystery of Christianity is summarized in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, end quote from Max Lucado. Now, I'm incredibly grateful I've had, in a sense, three great lights or examples of light in my life. First of all, there was the illumination of Scripture, which not only shone a light into my own darkness, but also revealed Jesus, the second light in my life. The third form light took in my life had to, was kind of more incarnational. Now, that's a bit of Christianese, meaning uh, a situation whereby a person becomes God with skin on. That's how one lady described it. Christians are God with skin on. And when God with skin on meets my physical needs, answers my many prayers, answers my many, many questions, and comforts my hurting heart, he does it through Christians. Many times, God with skin on looks exactly like my Christ-following husband, Eric, who is always there to walk the journey of life with me. And he's been a special blessing when the road of life gets pretty bumpy, and it has gotten pretty bumpy. Seldom complaining, he's just there, praying for me, praying with me, praying for us as a couple. He makes breakfast. He brews coffee. He holds my hands through joys and challenges and disappointments and the scary times before and after brain surgery. Yeah, he is God with skin on to me sometimes. Sometimes God with skin on looks exactly like Pastor Brad, who just showed up at my door one evening with his dog Poppy. After I just prayed to God, not 10 minutes earlier, because I had reached the end of my physical pain threshold. I was in so much pain, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I prayed to God, and Pastor Brad knocked on my door. And he prayed for me. And the pain lessened considerably. And I got to enjoy the company of Poppy. 
Now, I don't think God is above using any of his creation, even those of the four-legged variety, to bring comfort to us when we need it. And I sure needed it. Sometimes God, with skin on, takes the form of people, mostly, in my experience, women, <laughs> who provide meals for people who can't prepare them for themselves. We've been involved in that this last couple of weeks with one of our people who comes to Jericho. And it's a wonderful, wonderful way for people to be God with skin on to people who really, really need it. I know whereof I speak because Muriel Young's quiche always seemed to appear just when Eric and I needed it the most. And the women of Eric's church stepped up and provided meals for over a month after my brain surgery. It was an amazing thing. God with skin on, meeting our needs. Now these examples of incarnational light are wonderful ways we might and really must imitate Christ in practical ways. In considering how we might be the light that God intended, how might we imitate Christ? We have to consider not only what we might do, but also what we must not do. First, the positive. How on earth are we to imitate the sinless God? Now, I'm, this year, is I'm going to be celebrating my 50th year as a Christ follower. So I've been with the Lord a long, long time. But in those first years, and sometimes subsequently, depending on what's going on in my life, I really struggle with that. I mean, the Bible... That never tells us to do something we can't do. But how do you do that? How do you imitate the sinless God? Well, first, in a positive way. We need to look no further than this very chapter in Ephesians 5, verse 2, which says, life is Live a life, you Christians, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. And the next sentence qualifies that love as being sacrificial in nature. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And we know that God was pleased with that sacrificial love because it's described in the next few words as, quote, a pleasing aroma to God. So if we want to please God and imitate Christ, we must find ways to express God's love and at least sometimes in sacrificial ways. On the flip side, we have to be careful not to go beyond the bounds of the example that Jesus has given to us. Yes, like a light set on a hilltop that can't be hidden, Jesus shone his light into the world, but he was very careful how he interacted with the sinful world around him. With the exception of the two temple scenes in which Jesus offended tables and drove out those who tried to make it a place of business and profit. Jesus showed great compassion to people, not condemning behavior or words out of hand. J. Vernon McGee makes the point that God disciplines only his children, not those who do not belong to him. God will judge and eventually condemn unbelievers, but Discipline belongs properly and only to those who are in God's family. So in our interaction with the dark world around us, we have to be careful not to exceed God's example 
not to exceed Christ's example, and not to misuse the exercise of discipline and try to apply that to non-family members. Rather, we're to be especially lovely to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to shine the light of God on others and live godly lives before the world, all of which will reveal the darkness in their lives and point them to Christ. Ephesians 5 goes on to read, Once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. It continues, Evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light that we are makes everything visible. We are not to judge those who live in darkness, partly because when we who are light shine into their lives, their evil ways will be exposed naturally. And also because before we came to Christ, and Paul makes this clear in more than one epistle, we were guilty of living exactly the same way they are living now. So we're not in any position to judge. As Christ's light, we are merely, and we need to remind ourselves of this, and we need to remind those around us in the world. We are merely sinners saved by grace. We are nothing more than wonderfully, miraculously forgiven. Ephesians 5.1 doesn't ask us to do something that's impossible. Although at first glance, it might appear to be that way. Paul doesn't tell us to be gods or to be God. He is very careful to put a limitation on our imitation. Now, I remember Halloween last year, and I have to tell you, I partook in this thing that the church did. I came dressed as my cat, and uh, I sat behind a table, and I gave out treats to the kitties. And I have to tell you, some of the kids in this church are really good imitators. As a matter of fact, Evelina and Luca were dressed as the Mario brothers. And I can't tell you how effective putting a black mustache on a kid is. They came, and, and, and uh, actually, uh, Jen was dressed as a Care Bear. Like, right? So they, they, I, they came, I said, hi, how you doing? Here's some candy, and off they went. And uh, a couple of minutes later, uh, their grandmother showed up and came over and talked to me, and I said, well, where are the kids? Where's, where's Luca? Where's, where's, where's Evelina? She says, oh, they've already been through. I said, what? Yeah, I completely missed them. They're great imitators. But they weren't the Mario brothers. They just imitated them. And so we are to imitate God. And when the world looks at us, hopefully we become God with skin on. And our witness is that way. So Paul never tells us to be God. Okay, I've got to make that so clear. Because, you know, some people believe that. Some people believe that we are capable of being God. We are not. The answer is found in the end of verse 3. We're called to be God's people. Now, some translations use the word saints. 
The word saint has a connotation that maybe Christians find prideful. Now, in Roman Catholicism, which was the religion that I, I was uh, born into, um, only a very select few are deemed saints, and they're all dead. They were the super-Christians. They led exemplary lives. Some of them were martyred. Uh, some of them died young. Some of them died early. Um, and the church, for whatever reason, deemed them saints. Okay, so that's kind of why saints, you know, you say when you say, well, Alan said to me this morning, oh, well, wh where's your costume? And I said, yeah, well, no, I'm dressed as a saint. <laughs> now, I'm a pretty unknown saint, um, but, but I am a saint, right? You know, um, so the Bible, though, repeatedly calls every Christian believer a saint. And again, to do so is to focus our eyes on what God has done for us and not what we've accomplished in and of ourselves. A saint is simply a person whom God has called out, consecrated, set apart. So the injunction to steer clear of sexual immorality and greed makes sense because as Paul puts it, such behavior has no place among God's people or among God's saints. So God's people are called out from those things. And so it makes perfect sense when he talks about sexual immorality and greed and all that kind of thing. That it's not part of who we are. It's what God has called us out of. And things like imbibing of wine to the point of drunkenness, not, not good. It says if you do that, you will ruin your life. I come from an alcoholic family, let me tell you that it's true. My dad, who thankfully came to the Lord on his deathbed, lived a life where he was drunk more than he was sober. And it ruined his life. It ruined our family life. So I know that the word of God is true on that. So if we're wise, and if we're concerned, we're concerned to do what God wants us to do, if we're concerned to make our lives a pleasing aroma to God, we will not indulge in those things. It's that plain, even though it can present itself as extremely difficult. But it's not impossible. I find comfort in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 1 that tells me, as I struggle in my life to be a Christ follower. I have access to the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. Well, how great is that power? Christ was dead, and then he was alive. That is a power that is great beyond our wildest imaginings. And Paul again reminds us in Philippians, I, and that means me, that means you, that means all of us who are Christ followers, can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One final thought. When we're called out by God to a life of Christ following, 
we leave a lot of things behind in the darkness. All those unsuitable things that constantly call to us, how can we stand up against them? Well, it's the Holy Spirit within us. It's that light within us. It's that Christ dwelling within us that makes it possible. Christ's Holy Spirit, who at one time was the confronter of our sins, has now become the comforter of our life. And he lives inside of each of us. And how do we access him? Paul tells us in verse 18 and 19 that we have a choice to make. Instead of ungodly behavior of whatever kind we are into or were into, he said, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your heart. So whereas once we did this, those things that were unpleasing to God, that God condemned. Now we do that. It's substitutionary, people. Right. Instead of indulging in eutropelia, the Greek word for polished and witty speech as an instrument of sin, we should devote ourselves to eucharistia, the Greek word for thanksgiving. Now, those are the two words that Paul uses. And, you know, it's interesting. If we, were, if we spoke New Testament Greek, we'd kind of chuckle. That's witty. That's pithy. They both start with E-U. They both end in I-A. Witty. Used to explain something spiritual. As opposed to eutrophilia, which is the same thing used in a sinful way. Wow, amazing. So Eucharistia, the Greek word for thanksgiving, and in this context specifically to God, are we capable of this? Remember, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Receive this benediction from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who by the power at work within us, within us, is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'm going to call up the, the worship team. It's a very, very crucial ministry within the church. They're part of that, that substitutionary thing. Instead of cursing God and telling obscene stories, Paul tells us to sing psalms and songs and hymns. And this team does that in this church, and I'm so grateful. You've done a wonderful job this morning. Um, so... This is a really important part of what happens here. If you're coming just to hear the preacher, which I'm supposing you aren't, um, you're missing something if you don't realize that this is a crucial part of worship. And it, what, it's what helps us avoid all those things that God is not pleased with. So please join with me and join with this wonderful team and praise God. In Jesus' name, amen.